0: Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show, send Ray, myself and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, I love promoting his book every week. <laughs> He's uh, one of the top features to follow on Twitter at R-W-A-N-G zero. Welcome Ray Wong to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. Happy Friday, everyone. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. He's one of the top followers on Twitter for CIOs, CMOs, CEOs, and the endless, endless wiz- points of wisdom on life. So if you <laughs> catch his Twitter, you'll be super happy, super excited, and of course, inspired, especially in times like this. So. We've got awesome guests every week. Who do we kick off with this?
0: You know, Ray, we've got some of the best and brightest CEOs and thought leaders that come on Disrupt TV, and today's no exception. Our first guest is Dr. Rana al kioubi CEO and co-founder of Affectiva, and author of Girl Decoded. we are gonna learn about the incredible new book. Rana is a pioneer in artificial intelligence, emotional artificial intelligence, emotional AI, as well as co-founder and CEO of Affectiva, an acclaimed AI startup that was spun from MIT Media Labs. After earning her doctorate degree from Cambridge University, Rana joined MIT Media Labs as a research scientist where she spearheaded the application of emotion recognition technology in a variety of fields including mental health and autism. Rana's company, Effectivo, now works with more than a quarter of the companies in the Fortune Global 500. She's also the author of Girl Decoded, A Scientist's Quest to Reclaim Our Humanity by bringing emotional intelligence to technology. Wow! No! Yeah, wow! Wow! Uh, Rana is an unbelievable TED Talk speaker, Aspen Idea speaker. She's been profiled in the New Yorker. She was on the Forbes list of America's top 50 women in tech. She made Fortune Magazine's list of 40 under 40. In 2019, she appeared in a YouTube original series, Age of AI, hosted by the real Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. So, uh, by the way, you only have a 20-minute show, and I have to cut your bio down to a minute, sorry. You can follow Dr. Kirubi on Twitter at K-A-L-I-O-U-B-Y. Welcome, Rana, to Destruct TV.
2: Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan of you, Vala, and I follow you uh, religiously on Twitter. Um, and sometimes I'm like, is he a chatbot? Like, are these for real? <laughs> they are. You're here.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. It's the Thank one you. and
1: only. And on your <laughs> end as well, I've been watching that TED talk with lots of interest. I think it's been amazing. But I think more interesting is really, you were set off on a personal mission. And this personal mission, I mean, you've seen it in your career, you've seen it in the startups that you're working on, you've seen it in the talks. It's about humanizing technology. But growing up where you were growing up back in the time, you know, that might have seen a big stretch for not only you and and society and around you. So tell us a little bit about that story.
2: Um, so I'm originally from Egypt. I grew up uh, in Cairo and the Middle East. Uh, um, uh, my parents are technologists. So funny story there. My dad taught COBOL programming in the 17th. He's in I, the man
3: right now.
0: I know, I know. It's back. It's back.
2: And, and my mom uh, decided, this was before they met, and she decided to um, learn about programming. And so she signed up for this programming class, met my dad and, uh, you know, and they, they've both been in technology uh, their entire careers. Uh, so, you know, they had a little bit of influence on on uh, on my choice of studying computer science. Um, but I've just always been fascinated by how technology brings people together um, and, 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 and changes the way we connect and communicate with one another. That's been a driving force throughout my entire career. Um, and shortly after kind of majoring in computer science in Egypt, I uh, started a PhD at Cambridge University, and that was my first kind of living away from home experience. And I get there, and I realize I was spending more time with my device. This was back in 2000, so before we even had smartphones, but still, I was, was the main portal of communication with my family back home. And... Uh, you know, like the times we're in today, all of the richness of face to face conversations right. uh, just didn't, you know. Um,
1: okay. yeah, I think I lost you for a little bit, but uh, you're talking oh, about, if... you know, getting back to that humanizing piece, right? The richness of interactions and experience. So, I,
0: you know, give I, me I... one
2: second. Sure. Just, sure. Give sure. me one second. I will switch um, yeah. Yeah. networks. While you're doing
1: that, don't worry about that. She's switching networks. Yeah. You know, Vala, one of the interesting things about, you know, that TED talk was really, you know, just you know just Back. feeling the inspiration right and ron i think that's the thing that you know we, we really got from that i mean i was like people like hey we need to get her come speak at our conference i'm like yeah, it's, it's, if we have the conference in live yes we're definitely gonna think about that right and it's, it's definitely that power behind that conversation um, so, so let's talk about more about that, right? I mean, this, this new notion of emotional intelligence and the technology we interact every day. I mean, sometimes I feel like we're being trained to react on emotion and not logic, like everything's incentivized for gamification for endorphins. Let's get yeah. the most endorphins in you, like in the next 30 seconds. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, um, can you hear me fine? I switched. I think we should be okay. Um, When you look at human intelligence, your IQ or your cognitive intelligence is, of course, super important. But your emotional intelligence, like how can you read other people's nonverbal communications and tap into that and adapt your behaviors? Like people who have higher EQs are better managers, they're better leaders, they're more persuasive, they're more likable and i just believe that this is true for technology as well especially technology that interfaces with us on a on a on a uh, kind of um you know continuous basis on an everyday basis like your amazon alexa or your device your phone or your car um and so these devices don't just need iq which is what most people focus on in the ai space they need eq as well they need to have empathy they need to learn human they need to understand how humans behave and so um yeah, that's kind of, we're trying to build computers that can understand your facial expressions, your hand gestures, your vocal intonations and interact with us just the way we would.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, um, uh, I'm i also from, from the Middle East, uh, immigrated to the U.S. Uh, abruptly. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the importance of IQ and EQ uh, especially when you go through what, argue, what I would argue the most disruptive thing that could happen to a person, whether you leave your birth country by choice or you're forced, right. um, really opens up your eye to uh, the importance of uh, emotions. And and what better time than now where there's such a need for empathy and forgiveness oh. and inclusive inclusivity. So what, what were some of the challenging decisions you had to make? Um, in terms of your research and your career, because you're a pioneer. I mean, you're, you know, working in the field of AI as a scientist way ahead of most of us. Uh, so what were some of the challenges in terms of identifying the path you wanted to and, you, and your uh, your research thesis?
2: You know, a number of things, um, you know, even just thinking back to when I was a fresh graduate.
0: So can see what's uh... Yeah, maybe on our end. <laughs> so it could be
1: yeah Yeah. but you know everyone's on the internet, everyone's sheltering from home. And, yeah, right, uh, right. I mean, the- right. Yeah,
2: so um, yeah, it's, it's very unusual um, to kind of, you, my husband at the time, he had to stay because he was running a startup, and so I just basically left and-, and, and Alone. And, wow. uh, alone and started the PhD. So that was kind of a defining moment. Uh, later on, after I finished my PhD at Cambridge, I had the opportunity to join MIT Media Lab as a postdoc and research scientist. And again, I commuted between Boston and Cairo, which was really wow. tough for all sorts of reasons but I you know back to what Ray was saying once you have a conviction and a passion about something mm-hmm. it just trumps everything else right and, yeah. and and I find that like it continues to be the driving force behind um, my actions I just fundamentally believe we need this technology and it's going to improve our lives in multiple ways and I want to see it out there
1: you know what is it too is it's the study of, of- you're talking about emotion, right, and the science of emotion. Um, I mean it does it make you more introspective, like looking at yourself as you're studying everyone else? Uh, and does that change the way you think about human interaction?
2: Yeah, so so the book is called Girl Decoded for a Reason. Um, as I was starting to read to write the book, i I realized that in this whole journey of teaching computers to read emotions, I had to decode my own emotions. I come from a very kind of hardworking family, like no nonsense. You don't whine about things. And so growing up, (laughs) I didn't really talk about my emotions much. And I didn't really acknowledge my emotions to my own self even. Um, But just over the past few years, um, especially as I kind of stepped into, started the company and stepped into the CEO role, I started to really Um, share my emotions more broadly, and I I feel like there's a lot of power in doing that. There's a lot of power in, you know, leading with empathy and being vulnerable. Um, And and so, yeah, I've learned a lot about myself uh, in this process of teaching machines about emotions.
0: That's very cool. I hope you don't have siblings, because how do they compete with a pioneer in the most important technology of the 21st century, a CEO, a sure-to-be best-selling author. <laughs> that's a dinner at your household. But you know in know COBOL, I bet. So that's still- has uh, some-
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, <laughs> of- I have two younger sisters, and they are also super rock stars. So, uh, oh, and- awesome. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool.
0: That's, yeah. that's awesome. So t- tell us about you know how do you build emotion into technology. you know Ray and I are technologists, and this is a super fascinating, super important because as we talk about ethical use of technology, which I think will challenge all businesses that are involved in leveraging machine learning and, and neural networks, deep learning, and all these advanced natural language processing, all these technologies that are supposed to co-create value at the speed of need in a highly personalized, highly relevant way. Emotions play a, a, an incredible role in all of that. So how do you do it?
2: If you think about how people communicate emotions and their mental states in general, um, only 10% is in the choice of words we're using. 90% or more is nonverbal. And it's split kind of equally between your facial expressions, like your smile or frown or smirk. And, um, and your hand and face gestures and then your vocal intonations and so what we do is we try to capture these signals by using deep learning computer vision machine learning speech recognition Um, and we essentially like for example if you wanted to train an algorithm that can detect a smile versus a smirk they both involve the lower half of the face but they have very different meanings we kind of feed the algorithm hundreds of thousands of examples of people smiling hundreds of thousands of examples of people smirking and the machine learns the difference between awesome. two. Um, yeah, and, and we just keep adding more and more data to increase the repertoire of the system. Um, so right now we're up to about 25 different expressions and emotional and cognitive states. There's still that's, a lot of work do.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Ray, really, I think about it, you know, the, the role of, of CHROs finding more effective ways of recruiting Talent, yeah, and being able to assess, uh, uh, you know, emotional intelligence uh, with the candidates to ensure cultural fit and willingness to work. I know you apply, apply team ability exercise. I also think about sales professionals. I've never met a sales professional that has closed a significant deal purely digital. So the ability to engage with your customers and prospects and be able to assess their their likelihood to be uh, more interested and engaged in the products and services that you offer. How incredibly important to assess the selling motion and the emotions involved when, when we're in a purely distributed digital world that we're in. I think your technology is going to be so incredibly important for different lines of business, marketing, sales, customer service, and support. Oh, I mean, I, I lived in that space for 10 years. So being able to understand the emotions of my clients, as we engage i mean it's it's an infinite amount of applicability in my mind so so congratulations, I think it's incredible Ray, sorry that was just i'm excited uh, about the
1: technology a, <laughs> No, we're on cutting edge stuff right and you know and, and some of the things yeah
2: um vala i w- what you said totally resonates with me um, I, I i especially now in the times when yeah especially now in the times where we are working virtually, where, you know, my kids are learning online. We have this need to be able to quantify what's working and what's not, right? As a CEO, I want to be able to build loyalty and trust and empathy right. and motivate my team. And it's so hard to do that virtually. But imagine if we were able to capture all of that information and give you know, the business leader or the salesperson, some feedback, you know, when you did this, it worked really well. Like we could see that they perked, you know, they leaned in and they perked up or you went on and on and on and on for 20 minutes and people were rolling their eyes. They're not buying, right? Like that would be so powerful data.
0: Hugely powerful. And by the way, I have never met a sales professional that was able to, you know, complete a, a, a substantial sale without physically yeah, meeting the person. Right. It, it, those those cues we pick up at a networking event, breaking bread at dinner, you know, just being able to read the room in person. And now we're forced to do this in a distributed digital model. So I think that the the the, the relevance of what you and your company is doing is is um, is significantly more in this new post pandemic. And I know Ray, you wrote the post pandemic playbook. I can Im- just imagine being able to read the room in the digital you know, channel is, is, is incredible. It's incredible. It's,
1: it's it's the texture. You lose that feeling. And, you know, and, and part of that too, is, I mean, you know, as we're trying to do this in technology. One of the questions that you answer is really, you know, how do you build empathy into technology? I mean, it sounds really, you know, technology is bytes and bits and ones yeah. and zeros and like, how do you ensure that there's some level of empathy, Rana?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it, let's picture this. I mean, we've all used some kind of conversational interface. Uh, think of Amazon Alexa, right? You ask Alexa to play a song or order something for you. She doesn't get it right. So you ask it again and then she gets it wrong again. Now you're increasingly becoming frustrated and annoyed with it. But Alexa is completely oblivious to that. Well, what Mm -hmm. instead, you know, imagine if instead it had some level of emotional intelligence. And so it could detect that, you know what, you're getting annoyed here. And it could empathize, it could take a step back and say, you know what, I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm not getting this right, let me try again, let me try something different. Uh, That that would quickly move these conversational interfaces from being very transactional, you ask it, do something it just does it end of the conversation to becoming more conversational truly and getting to know you and once it gets to know you it can persuade you to do things It can persuade you to be more productive or eat healthier or you know move more um, which we all need to do <laughs> um, I definitely do so I absolutely
0: think. absolutely my, my, fi- my, my final question is uh, can you share an aha moment with Girl Decoded? You know, as as you go through the journey of capturing your experiences, lessons, failures, meaningful connections, um, and and you're a trailblazer. Again, you're you're a CEO. The pedigree from Cambridge University to Media Labs. I mean, you're surrounded by the arguably the smartest people in the world. So uh, in terms of reflection and and some of the aha moments as you wrote the book, can you share, uh, you know, uh, a a few of those with us? Yeah,
2: I. I I think my biggest just takeaway having written the book is the number of times I've had um, inner doubts. I don't know if people can hear me. Yeah, we
1: can hear you. We got a quick question for you. Uh, It's coming from. Coming from the chat, it's our friend, uh, Matthew Halliday. Are facial expressions changing over time to display emotion? For example, are you getting too much Botox? So everyone smile like, yeah, right. uh, <laughs> do, do you find new data sets are varying over time? Uh, like the way language changes, now we can have facial expressions change over time. You know, you can I, don't get, that and hop up.
2: I love that question. I don't get that question often, but it's spot on. Facial expressions are dynamic. You can't just tell the emotion from just one static picture. You need to see how it unfolds over time. Um, so, so t- it's it's a time series kind of uh, data, and we look at the the ha- you know how the face changes from one frame to the next. That's a really critical part of it.
1: Would you apply like mm-hmm. a reinforcement uh, reinforcement learning? Apply, yeah, okay.
2: Yeah, exactly, and also like recurring your neuro- recurrent neural networks, uh, not just convolution neural nets, so that we can consider mm-hmm. the time. Exactly, because you get the
1: time elapsed and then all
0: the- Awesome, awesome. (laughs) As we geek out
1: on (laughs) AI algorithms, uh, we're with Rana Alcalori, PhD, CEO and co-founder at Effectiva and author of the book, Girl Decoded, published by Penguin Random House. Definitely check that out. You can get the book, uh, check it out. And of course, we'll get some of your questions in there. So Rana, thank you. We'll send you a note
0: afterwards. Thank
1: you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, everybody. Thank you
0: so much. You're terrific, terrific. Please follow Rana on Twitter. Uh, you know, brilliant. She's working on uh, truly leading-edge technology. Right, our next guest, uh, we welcome Jason Corman, CEO of Gaping Void. Uh, Jason is the co-founder CEO, CEO of Gaping Void, a serial entrepreneur. Jason's early career was spent in the wine business. So at age 24, he created La Crema Winery, which was 200 acres of vineyard and three different facilities throughout Northern California. He then later went on to create Stormhawk, uh, a South African winery that became an early case study on how to use social media to create a global brand. His viral campaigns cleared out shelves of over 2000 stores in the UK wine retailer in a weekend, which led Stormhawk to win an Ad Age 50 award. Gaping Boy, Jason's current company has always been about seeing the world through a unique lens that connects seemingly unrelated ideas to provide insights and to make life and business a little bit more human. Talk about emotional AI and making business human. I love this. The core concepts forming Jason's work is belief that business and products connect with people in complex emotional ways. Technology has always changed how we work and there is ongoing realignment of where we work and life intersect. You can follow Jason's company on Twitter at g a p i n g v o i d. Welcome, Jason, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vala.
3: Great to be here, Ray. A huge fan. Love love the show. So it's really a, a pleasure to be on. And and um, I I want to echo Rana's um, admiration of your Twitter feed, Vala. I don't know how you do it. Clearly, it's your main job because it's it is. <laughs> Perfectly orchestrated, and uh, it's a mystery as to how you actually were able to pull that off.
1: <laughs> I, I, I have
0: some of, some emotional AI robots that assist with my... No, I'm kidding, I'm We're gonna like, the, the call Ron on, on that. Yeah, yeah. get our emotional... Get the emotion I, back and... I appreciate that. I appreciate
1: so, that. hey, no, thank you for being on the show. I mean, we've been big fans of you for a long time and your company. You know, you guys are best known for those fun cartoons that just capture the moment, and you're like, Oh, yeah. That's so cool. right? And, and it's really about that clear and focused approach. Talk about your mission to make work more meaningful uh, and, and help people love what they do because you clearly love what you do. So so over
3: the years, we've been doing this for, for a dozen years now. And over the years, we have um, really turned the, the organization, and we're a small company, but we have a focus on culture design and this idea that uh, organizational cultures can and should be deliberately designed, and it all started as an accident. Right? Um, it started back actually before Gaping Wood Culture Design was 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 uh, was created in, in two thousand and five when um, we became friendly. I was based in in London with 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 my co-founder Hugh McLeod, who is the chief creative and the guy responsible for all those all those uh, um, really interesting drawings. And um, we 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 became acquainted acquainted with a, a bunch of folks from from Microsoft, uh, most notably a guy named Steve Payton, who was who was a marketing guy in London at the time. And um, we were sort of we spent a bunch of time with them. We saw that that then you think you've got to remember Microsoft two thousand five two thousand six, it was a time when um, Microsoft was not say the beloved organization that it is today, right? They were the evil empire it was before you know the other evil empires really were big enough to, to uh and compete on evil empireship <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and and you know there was this 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 uh, thing we identified within um within the folks we met which is that they all joined microsoft to have this huge impact <clears throat> on the world the scale the opportunity you know, Val probably a lot of the way you feel about Salesforce and and being part of a big organization, but you know they they felt that the market you know kind of hated them, didn't give them the opportunities they wanted, and. And um, so, so Hugh created this image, um, which, which, which was this blue monster, right, we became known as. And it just said, Microsoft changed the world to go home. And you can go search for it now online, um, and there's still dozens and dozens and dozens of articles and white papers. And, and it was the study about how this, this image um, and the simple idea actually became an internal meme within Microsoft and really changed how people looked at their work. And during that time, I looked at that and went, this is interesting. Right, like really interesting. How is it possible that a simple idea attached to an illustration can have that much power? Right, and what I realized was that it was really a study in a new way of of of, of executing change management. That's what it is. And so over time, what we've done, and this is kind of interesting, and it's been a lot of trial and error, and we've been really fortunate to be support, supported early on by people like Tony Shade Zappos and Graham Weston at, mm. at, at Rackspace and all sorts of like really bright culture-centric CEOs. And they all jumped in. And they, and, they, and they let us, they paid us to learn, basically, is what they did. And, and what we saw over time was, was that um, we, could, we could reverse engineer what happened at Microsoft. And create frameworks that were data-driven with very specific outcomes that solve all sorts of really hard, you know, data-driven, you know, or, or i say employee experience problems, right? You know, culture. So, so, and it didn't, it wouldn't, it doesn't really matter what you're thinking about in terms of. Uh, digital transformation, patient experience in healthcare, innovation in the Air Force. You know, we're redesigning the culture for the Global Strike Command at the moment, which is which are the guys that handle 75% of the nuclear mission, right? So so it doesn't really matter what the human-centered problem is. We can identify the emotional connection to the outcomes. Like, like I really, really loved Rana's, you know, what Rana talked about, because it, it tracks directly to what we do, meaning... In business, the, you know, the discussion these days, oh, it's all, beta, it's all data-driven. But the reality of it is when it comes to humans, it's not data-driven at all. It's actually about emotion. It's about connecting people to emotion. It's about understanding the emotions that will drive the organizational outcomes you want to have, how you standardize and implement that and execute it in a way where you can make culture a management system that is effective for leadership, but also dramatically impacts people's work experience and gets them really connected to the vision the outcomes and the operational aspects of the work that need to happen. So I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it started with sort of crazy drawings and, and Microsoft as an accident, but then it's evolved a complete system of execution around building and executing culture at scale, right? Mostly for big organizations, so.
0: But Jason, we've had, uh... You know, Paul Darty, who's the chief technology innovation officer at Accenture, who wrote the book uh, back here, Human Plus Machine, sure. and gave number of examples in his book. I mean, he's leading, he's a technologist leading a 505,000-person company. Sure. And in the book, lots of references by industry, by geography of more algorithms and machines as part of the work environment. And we've referenced folks like Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, who talks about the future of work, which is, again, humans and machines coexist. Is it more difficult or what are the challenges of creating a meaningful work experience and helping people love what they do? Where as we look at the unprecedented velocity of innovation, speed and direction and the fact that they are heterogeneous environments of people and machines working together, whether it's at Amazon or Alibaba or wherever. Uh, these are some of the companies that are obviously doing amazing work with this environment. W- what are some of the challenges that you face creating that, that culture DNA when, when you have more automation and machines as part of the ecosystem? So, so
3: it's a, that's a really interesting question. I think the, the, um, <clears throat> there's some fundamentals that we cannot forget when it comes to people. All right um and those basics are really that that um well regardless it's it it doesn't matter whether there's a machine person interface or 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 work is is made to be more productive through through you know any any sort of technology, but we always have to remember the human fundamentals, which is that we all want to be part of something larger right. We all want to feel connection at work, and and I think one of the one of the challenges that a lot of large organizations have had is is this idea of connection and valuing connection for people. And the companies that are super successful tend to do that better than the folks who aren't. But in addition to wanting to be part of something larger, we want to grow and develop in what we do every day. And and you know that's tracks directly back to Maslow's theories. You know they're immutable. It is it is fundamentally human nature for most of us, right, and there are exceptions, but for almost all of us, we wanna grow and develop and feel that we are capable of self-actualizing in the things that we do every day that we're succeeding. Right? We also wanna have, and again, it's a huge challenge in big organizations, we want to feel that we have some control over our future. Right, wow. we, you know there's this concept of self-determination theory. We want to feel like and, and like like we actually are controlling in control of our lives. And sometimes it's an illusion. Right? Like <laughs> you, you, know who predicted COVID, right? Like you know you know we, there's things that happen, but we want to feel that we can influence you know our surroundings and our work environment and what have you. And, and what we see in big organizations, especially in sales, you know in, you know for companies that that want to remain focused on sales you know the further you get away from the customer you know the 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 less control you have over you know over a lot of interactions right and a lot of people like if if you're working in big pharma and you're a statistician you're showing up you know and working on stuff all day long and, and it's possible you can work for a very 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 long period of time without ever seeing the fruits of your labor right oh. it's it's I'm having electric I'm having light problems
1: here <laughs> problems. Are, everything you're talking about is like hey it's yeah, nice. yeah. It's <laughs> <great>. <laughs> good, the lights are going out I don't know yeah. God <laughs> has called and said we agree <laughs> there, there's some
0: affirmation going on behind you so so, I was trying to see if it was Morris Code like am I supposed to pick up on
3: <laughs> I don't know what the deal is, but anyway so, I, so the the other part, the last thing I'll say, and there's a list of other things, but the, the important things are that we want to feel that we're doing meaningful work that matters, right? So when, when we spend time, in, in, in especially in large organizations, right, um, one of the huge challenges is that people feel like they're doing work for work's sake, you know, they're showing up in meetings that lead nowhere, they're returning emails that there's just a huge burden. The quality of 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 of, of work and work experience um, declines because we don't feel like we're having real impact. Right mm-hmm. and, and mattering, you know, it feels oh inconsequential on one level, but on another level, it is the thrust behind I mean, when you see super successful startups. Yeah. Whoever's leading that has managed to actually bottle up this sense of mattering and meaning and purpose and connection and being part of something larger and a mission that matters, and that's that's their currency in many ways, you know. And and the guys, you know, and women who are really famous, you know, as entrepreneurs. Um, they didn't, they don't become that way because of luck and, and they don't necessarily become that way because they're smarter than everybody else. A lot of it has to do with these emotional things that they understand about people and human nature and how they work and what matters and how you create culture that really impacts people within and without. Right. So, so, and I'll just, just to make a point about that final point is that when you look at companies like Zappos, right. And you strip away culture, it's a very mundane business, full price, <laughs> retail, a call center, right, is not a very exciting business. When you overlay culture, it is what provides the meaning and the purpose and makes them an irresistible place to do business as a customer and, and to want to work at. And, and so when we think about the rich possibilities to add value through, through aligning people around culture, cultural norms, I, don't, I think the, 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 the question of technology is a bit of a red herring because you've got to deal with the fundamentals of what people need and want. Right. And, and and if you get that covered, then then er- people can deal with the other stuff. Right. So I don't and
1: know if that makes a, sense. No, it makes it a ton of sense. Right. It's the it's really understanding what draws people, what gets that sense of urgency, what gets people, full, you know, lit up and that that excitement. You know, and, and one of the things you did is you, you actually studied this. Right. You have a CEO culture study. And if I remember properly, you talked about culture as a management system, which yeah. is pretty big. Yeah. So, okay. So,
3: so that study, which we, we we released um, earlier this year is it was, it was, it was based upon, well, first, a study that our friend Len Lusinger, who's um, who's uh, a fellow who's he has a, he's a professor, a Baker Scholar at Harvard now at HBS. Um, he had been the the president of Babson College. He had been the, the joint chairman uh, and COO of the Limited. He had been at Yale before that and Harvard. Like a, a very accomplished guy. He 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 he's a he's a um, uh, organizational psychologist and he is is the dog. Sorry. He, I love that. I love that.
0: <laughs> I have two big dogs and they bark at almost every meeting I have. So I, go you know, like I after I was, thinking,
3: I, was thinking, I hope the dog doesn't bark, right? But <laughs> So 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 Leonard done a did a study a few years ago, which basically um and, and he did a bunch of studies, but this one in particular really identified the fact that companies that do greater culture, culture centric, uh really outperform their competitive set. And this is the usual set of suspects, right? It was Four Seasons and Carlton, and, mm-hmm. and Nordstroms and all the companies we know really well, right? So, so he identified this economic sort of sort of uh, benefit that companies have, and we thought, okay, that's an interesting place to start. And and I thought about the people we knew, right? People like Tony Shea, you know, people like Graham Weston. People uh, you know that we 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 didn't know but observed like herb Keller at Southwest yeah. uh, more recently even sacha nadella you know especially sacha Nadella at Microsoft, the biggest uh culture change you know benefit ever created right uh, in the history of business um but we thought okay, there's more to it than just financial returns, and what we did in the study is we we linked up a bunch of data which really showed the following right? and 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 sorry just just to add one more thing. And what we wanted to do was disimbue people of the notion that culture is only about employee engagement, right? Because that's the that's that's the that's the 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 trope on it. It's like, oh yeah, more engaged employees. Well, you know, we get more more out of our people. And we thought, no, we know that 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 that's part of it, but it's part of a much bigger bigger discussion. So what we saw. Was that? And this was CEO directed. So for CEOs who invest in culture, that's personally time and effort, and really you know, economically in their businesses. What they get first is employees as fans, all right. Mm-hmm. And you can there, there's there's available um, Glassdoor data, which is very clear, you know, about this. All right, anybody can find. It. So employees as fans, and then what we saw, and 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 Vala, you I'm, you you're very familiar with this, and Ray too, as for you as well. That that. That that when you have employees who are highly engaged, who love their work, who love their company, right, you wind up with customers who adore doing business with them. Right. Why? Because customer experience is a direct, direct outcome of employee experience. Absolutely. Right? 100%. Okay. So here was the weird twist, though. What we discovered was that it just so happens that the media loves the same companies that customers love and employees love, right? Now, okay. And and I guess the the most stark example of this is if you think about the media coverage of Microsoft pre-Satya and Mm post-Satya, right? I mean, there was not a lot good said about Steve Ballmer, let's just be honest. I mean, Steve's a totally nice guy, successful, like amazing great leader, but media hated him, right? Mm -hmm. Satya, oh, okay, culture, employees love him, customers now gonna go, you're okay now, right? Oh, the media loves him, right? And we see the economic impact of that, which is that it raises margins. It raises margins for a lot of complex reasons, but fundamentally, at its core, we talk about emotions, is that people are less price sensitive doing business with companies they love. Look at the pricing. Well, not this month, but until a few months ago. Look at the pricing on Southwest Airways. It used to be the low price leader. N- not anymore. Right. It is, it is very much, uh, you know, a a. Um, you know, all about uh, you know maximizing revenue now. So obviously, margins then turn into operating revenues, best-in-class operating revenues, and then we saw something else. And and this becomes obvious once I say it, which is that those companies have superb innovation, right? Mm-hmm. And the superb innovation, um, is really about the fact that people feel. Um, able to innovate in environments where they feel psychologically safe, where they feel that they're successful, where they feel the company's got momentum, where companies are able to invest in innovation, and it carries through. And that carries through for public companies to amazing share performance, greater personal income as a percentage of revenue for the CEO themselves, but also ultimately more influence for the organization and the individual running it. And that in turn attracts better people, and there's a flywheel effect. And the flywheel effect just goes on and on and on and we see it and we see when it's when it breaks too so um so anyway so that's what the study the, that's the short version of the great study, study. great it's study incredible. but, it's
0: but uh, my final question to you jason um uh, you know uh what do ceos need to do now uh in that you know you know short of you know millions of tests per day or or, or tracing capabilities and ultimately maybe a vaccine we're going to be in this new norm where we're going to be in a more distributed more digital environment even as businesses start to open back up in limited capacity throughout the country and the world so you know what 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 is your advice to CEOs who really need to ensure that there's meaningful work and commitment for all stakeholders business partners customers and and certainly employees in order to stay relevant in this highly competitive highly disruptive world that we, you know that we're yeah. going to be a part of at least in the, this calendar year
3: so of course you know I, I don't claim to have all the answers i thought um rana's uh discussion earlier about non-verbal communication um mm-hmm. is really interesting because um a lot of non-verbal communication will be unavailable um you know bi- you know this biochemical communication you know, not a thing, not, not, not over the internet. Right? <laughs> um, but that is that, you know, there's a lot of studies on the impact of that, but, but even facial, uh, even facial, um, um uh, you know, uh, uh, communication is, is, is in question. So for me, the things you can control, right. Are, um, are really about, um, about words and language, right. And, 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 language is such an important aspect of culture, um, and the deliberate design and spread of language is really important. You know, we're tracking mm-hmm. back the discussion we started on with 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 images. The whole idea behind images is attaching language to to um, to a device to spread it. Right, that's what it's actually all about. It's about memetics, and it's about how you actually can get ideas to spread at scale in big organizations. And so, our challenge, I think, this, the challenge for CEOs is being explicit about norms. Because most norms are not explicit they just happen and you got to really and it's really hard to understand what your norms are when you're swimming in the water right so that's that's the, the water of the norm so you got to understand what are your norms what norms do you want to shift right what's the explicit language that you want to connect people to right and then how are you going to spread it and 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 you know that's a very short recipe for a very complex outcome but it's really how are you going to spread the the, the language that you want people to adopt and you want them to understand and and which all tracks back to the original statement about just wanting to be part of something larger, doing meaningful work, et cetera. So there's a design to it, and then there's the execution. The execution can be done virtually. It's not a problem at all, but you just need the tools to do. It. And so that's, that's
0: there you go. Uh, Terrific.
1: Ray, you're on mute. Real quick, what do we do post-pandemic with CEOs uh, going forward? What what should they think about? There's one thing they should just think about as they're trying to get through this: help people become more inspired and understand where they're coming from, especially when people are acting on fear, not logic.
3: Well, okay, so so that's a really interesting challenge, and I want to, I don't want to say we have the answers, you know, but but I think it's remembering that people that notion that people want to be part of something larger that they want to they feel they're making a difference. Making sure, you know, a lot of people dismiss things like vision as unimportant or you know, just a marketing thing. It's not at all. Right. It is what sets the, the actual culture. Right. So your cultural norms. Right. And, and we're not big on values, but I'll use the word just because everybody understands it. But your values are really a slave to delivering your vision. And if you're not really clear on where you're going, right, and it shouldn't be about just about numbers. It should be about some, you know, some some metrics, but it should be a bigger picture. And it shouldn't be too fluffy. It needs to be pretty straightforward. But if if what you have to do is make sure everybody understands where you're going together, right, and understand how you're going to get there, right, and 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 the how is what we call belief system. And you got to be really explicit about what that the language around it and how you execute that. But if you can do that, right. Then you will make people feel connected and involved, and and understanding that look, they're, they're, we're in extraordinary times. It's temporary though, and we will get back to normal. And in the meantime, you're cared for, you're part of our community, and
1: and off we go together. So,
0: thank you, Jason. That's we're safe here advice. with Jason Corman,
1: CEO at Gaping Void. No Twitter handle on his own yet. He's trying to avoid getting in trouble. But you follow the company Twitter handle at Gaping Void. Definitely awesome, insightful. Thank you for sharing with that. And of course- Thanks, Jason. Thanks. Thanks, I love thanks, to have you back.
0: Terrific, terrific. Uh, it's incredible advice there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, CEOs have, uh, you know, uh, challenges that uh, we're all facing. We're all struggling. Uh, you're not alone. So, uh, uh, and and our final guest, uh, and this is, uh, you know, uh, the cleanup hitter spot where We often have our guests hit a grand slam, and this is no exception. We have Dr. David Bray, who's director of Geotech Center and Geotech Commission at the Atlantic Council. Dr. Bray has served in a variety of leadership roles in turbulent environments, so this is incredibly important for for him to share his advice to him, including bioterrorism preparedness response from 2005, time on the ground in Afghanistan, serving as a nonpartisan executive director for the National Commission R&D and providing leadership in various agencies as an executive director. Uh, last year, Dr. Bray accepted a leadership role in, to incubate a new global center at the Atlantic Council. He was named senior fellow uh, with the Institute of Human Machine Cognition. Uh, he's a, a business insider, named um, the top, one of the top 24 Americans who are changing the world uh, and he was also a uh, World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. Uh, sorry, Dr. Bray, I, uh, I have to reduce your bio because we only have 20 minutes. <laughs> he has received multiple- <laughs> I was going to say, we just found this guy off the street. We don't know where yeah. he came from, we're glad to have him here. So. He, has, we he, has, good, he We heard he's good, though. So, we heard
1: he's good. He has you know. received
0: multiple Global CIO awards, uh, and uh, last year he was invited to give the AI World Society distinguished lecture to the United Nations, you can follow all the work that he's doing at the geotech center and geotech commission uh, following twitter handle EO tech welcome back dr uh bray i think you co-hosted the show multiple times and i believe this may be your seventh appearance so you're a First ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupting Me. He's a freaking regular. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, just, to... Ray, I'm just glad to have
4: Vala here too, because sometimes it's like Ray and I, and we're like, Where's Vala? So yeah! asking for Vala, he's here
1: now. <laughs> we are not asking for Vala, but because he is here. No, but hey, no, we actually found him at the uh, local Japanese bento place, which was open. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we thought we'd get <laughs> started. <doing> so... <laughs> now i got to go to another hide oh, well. No, no. Hey, no, you're, you're the perfect person. Public health degree, a little bit of military experience, you know, a little, a little like, you know, foreign ex foreign, foreign relations experience, and now you're at the Atlantic Council. Talk a little bit about that real quickly, because I think that's important for people to understand what you're doing on the Geotech Center. And then let's talk a little bit about what you've been seeing at the broader scale on what's been happening with COVID-19.
4: Sure, thank you, Ray. And, and yes, uh, late 2019, the Atlantic Council, uh, which has been around since 1961, the Atlantic Council exists to champion the values of freedom, openness, and choice. Uh, We were created in 1961 when, believe it or not, uh, the Democrats from the Truman administration and the Republicans from the Eisenhower administration were so busy fighting amongst themselves, they weren't focused on this thing called the Cold War and making sure we still had openness and free societies. Uh, Fast forward 59 years later, we might be back there again. But what the Atlantic Council asked me to do in late 2019 was to create a new center focusing on the geopolitics of new technologies and data. That's what the geotech is, it's not geospatial. I know IT, I didn't get to pick the name. Uh, I said, you know, most people in IT are gonna think geotech's geospatial. We're really focusing on how do we actually do the values that uplift people, prosperity and peace around the world using new technologies and data. Cause a lot of people talk about tech for good or AI for good but I'm pretty sure if you go to every country around the world, including say China or Russia or other countries, they're probably sure they're doing tech for good as well. So it's really like, what are the values we want to be carrying forward? Whether we're in the public sector, whether we're a member of the public, whether are in the private sector that embody what we're trying to do for good. And so that's what the geotech center is focused on. And we launched literally uh, probably the, actually the same day the pandemic was officially declared in the United States. We actually launched. And, and, and what we have been focusing on since Is connecting the private sector of the United States uh, with world leaders, not just in the US, but around the world, on three specific activities. First, it's on this idea of data trust. Uh, We know there are certain countries that, you know, sort of say to our citizens, you know, privacy, throw it out the window, all your data belongs to us. It might be a country, say, of 1.4 billion people where. All their data is informing AI and algorithms. That's clearly not what we want to do here in the United States. That's not what we're going to do in Europe or Canada. And so we've been having experts from from Europe, from the United States, and Canada talk about how we could do data trust. Imagine, you know, you've heard about what Google and Apple's doing, but. The new data that just came out says that three out of five people still don't trust what they're doing when it comes to contact tracing. So what if instead they went to a nonprofit or multiple nonprofits, it could be a federation of nonprofits that were very transparent about why the data is being brought together. They have audit mechanisms so you can actually have assurances being done appropriately. They also have a sunset period. They say after a certain point in time, the data is forgotten. And then what this nonprofit sort of, this data trust is doing, is it's making sure your personal data is protected, your proprietary data is protected if you're a private institution, and it's making sure that it's only being used for that purpose, and then afterwards it goes away. So that's one thing we're championing. And we think that's gonna be important, not just with the immediate response for COVID-19, but the long-term economic recovery. The second thing we're also championing is unfortunately our analyses, and we did this in late March uh, before the UN, but now the UN's also saying it too with the World Food Program. It's looking like, unfortunately, there's going to be regional food crises and possibly a global food crisis that's actually worse than actually COVID-19. And so we're trying to galvanize industry, not just in the United States, but around the world to try and figure out what they can do with the food distribution. There's obviously cases where food, unfortunately, is being destroyed because they can't actually get to the market it needs to. And then there's other cases where people need it. And then there's also this question of how do you keep the trains running? How do you keep the ports running? And then the last thing I'll say real quick, and happy to dive deeper into this, Uh, back in 2013, I made a proposal to DARPA, which was we could use data and AI, we could use biosensors, we could use genome sequencing technologies, and we could actually create a immune system for the planet. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we could have early warning networks that would tell us if a new pathogen's out there, and we could immediately start trying to characterize it, try to figure out what therapies work on it, and not have to wait uh, a prolonged period of time before we start responding. And the reason why that was important was when I was involved in the response to severe acute respiratory syndrome in 2003, we knew about it about five and a half, six months before China finally said something's going on. And fast forward, here we are now. We need to build an immune system for the planet, not just because there may be future pandemics or things like that, but also because all the data is showing, unfortunately, there may be second or if not third waves of COVID-19, and we need to have a better handle of that for the years going forward.
1: And also the age of bioweapons. I mean, we're worried about that. Biowarfare yeah. is coming upon us.
4: Yes. The good news is personalized medicine's coming. The bad news is personalized medicine's coming and that can be tailored into poison. I don't think that we have national security or law enforcement apparatuses anywhere in the world right now that can handle that. And, and, and if right now you look like the solution is basically you monitor everybody, well again, that's back to surveillance state. That's not what we want. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to figure out a way to do it that still gives you freedom and choice and autonomy but also make sure that the technology doesn't become surveillance.
0: Sure, sure. Dr. Gray, the founder of my company believes business is the greatest platform for change. We've had in four weeks over 30 million unemployed uh, in in the US. What can the private sector do to help respond and rebuild, uh, you know, now and of course post-pandemic in this new new norm that we're talking about?
4: Great question. And, and I actually, this, your timing is, is very at Fala. Um, I want to give thanks actually to the CEO of your company uh, because he actually helped when we were trying to adopt. And just a real quick note that, 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 child who we did succeed adopt just celebrated his third, third birthday. So oh he God. actually embodies those values and want to thank him for that, no, no, congratulations. Um, but then, that's but-
0: so awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> So yeah, so, uh, share, so with, share with our share with our people the name of your your son and yes, Dylan. Uh, Dylan, he's he happy.
4: I will also share that he he knew he was telling everyone in the neighborhood that his birthday was a you know was coming up and everything like that. And that day when I went to go actually uh, to wake him up, I said, you know, do you know what today is? He's like
0: my birthday? And I said, yeah.
4: (laughs) And then he said, where's my cake?
0: (laughs) Oh, awesome, awesome. Train well, train well. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Go ahead. I suppose (laughs) not.
4: but, uh, But I raise that because you're absolutely right. We're now living in this era in which things that used to be done by government can't. They have to be done by industry, but the trouble is industry doesn't really know how to, how to mobilize coalitions. It, you know, Individual companies can do things, but we really need to build larger coalitions that span nations and sectors. And so right now with all that we're talking about, the pandemic prevention board, that really should be led by industry, not by government, because they've got the data and AI, they've got the possibilities to ask for technology. And they recognize that if you destabilize marketplaces because of a pandemic, that impacts your bottom line. And so that's how you have to make the case. Same thing with food, that that they have the ability to actually do better logistics, better supply chains, digitization. And, and let's, let's face the reality too. When we talk about a recovery, the recovery is gonna be back faster for those companies that in fact are inherently digital versus nations which have, you know, have lagged on going digital. I mean, unless you're Estonia, it's gonna be a very long period of time. And so we're in this interesting period where maybe instead of the United Nations, we should be talking about united companies for good or something like that. And again, define what we mean for good, but would love to, and, and again, any industry that wants to tackle this on, what I love about what the last two speakers have talked about is too, they're hitting the nail on the head. I don't think we're gonna go back to normal, to be honest. I think COVID-19 is one of those seismic shifts where we will, we will date the world as being different from here on out. And what it's gonna include is two important issues that your past two speakers talked about, which is how do we create trust remotely? And how do we create culture remotely? Because up until now, we humans would get together in person. That's how we would figure out through body language and things like that, through nonverbal cues. That will hopefully, maybe we'll get back to, you know, in, in another, you know, I don't think it's going to be as fast as people think. And even then, I think if there is a second wave to COVID-19, we may be back to doing this again during the winter and coming back out next summer or spring. But I raise that because... Up until now, the way that we've done governance, and I'm intentionally using the word governance, not governments, is it was in person. I mean, face it, Congress hadn't even given themselves authorizations to work remotely when the pandemic hit. <laughs> so, yeah. And then what do you do about classified information? You really don't want people reading classified information in their house unless they've got the appropriate protections. And so we've got a challenge of how do we create culture and trust remotely? And then on top of that, how do we respond with the appropriate speed and nimbleness to not just this pandemic, but other challenges such as climate change or other issues on the horizon, which again, I think we have we have definitely demonstrated that our current institutions are woefully unprepared to deal with that. But everything that we've been talking about here in terms of emotion and narrative, the challenge that we face is that unless you're an autocracy, it's very messy to try and figure out what's truth online without meeting in person. It's very messy to try and figure out what way is the right way to go because there's a lot of emotions and let's face it, a lot of what's currently on the internet, whether it's media or whether it's, you know, different perspectives or things like that tend to be very emotional heavy. Fact may be lesser, may may or may not be there, but we've got to figure out how do we build trust how do we build culture online especially when our confirmation biases might preclude us from wanting to read or dive deeper into something that we should be diving into but our confirmation biases are holding us back
0: yeah no absolutely it's, it's you know what you said this incredible seismic shift in the 21st century where perhaps in the future when we talk about acbc we're talking about you know before covid after covid 100% it's, you know, and, and that's just incredibly profound. Uh, great.
1: Yeah, no, we're, we're definitely seeing that. And, and part of that conversation that you've probably been having is really this discussion of, you know, new international relationships uh, that are forming. Right. We're seeing the divestiture and the uh, diversification of supply chains out of China and people are trying to move them out. Japan offered billions of dollars to manufacturers to move out. I believe we have legislation on the table that's coming up in the next four to six weeks in the same way for medical supplies and, and other parts of the industries. Uh, can we become more cooperative as we're closing borders and as we're thinking about you know the shifts in where – uh, nationalism has now come back into vogue, and and parties have almost like swapped places. Like you, know, you get one party giving out free checks to everyone, you get the other party closing down borders, and you're like, wait, what happened? Like Four, eight weeks ago, this would never have happened this way, right? I mean, are our norms changing as well along that, or or what are we operating against, you know, to to, to get to this point? Are we talking about end
0: of globalization, post, you know, well, like, so see
1: Right, we actually
4: had a, um, we wrote a piece and it was actually right, it was the same day but it was about five or six hours before uh, Governor Newsom announced that California was gonna be operating like a nation state. Um, So we, we were a little bit ahead of the curve there but we actually raised the question which is what pandemic may replace the current notion of a nation state being defined solely by geography? But what takes its place? It could be increased globalism where people say, let's find, you know, that we got into this mess because nations didn't work together. Let's find a way to work together. And I would say the path of globalism is not nations coming together, but industry saying, look, if if we don't figure this out for the world as a whole, we're going to lose marketplaces as a whole. And so globalism might be a path that's followed more in the future of industry, but industry's got to figure it out how it can pursue its own self interest but also include whether it's citizen boards, citizen juries, some way of involving the public to do things beyond the self-interest of just the company alone. Because otherwise, you know, I mean, I get why companies have to make sure they show return on investments and serve their stakeholders. But if they need to do something larger than that, they've got to figure out what that looks like. Um, That may be one thing. But I would say also watch what happens in Europe does Europe manage to keep the EU together with the response to COVID-19? We already saw, unfortunately, Italy got left to itself, uh, which is not a good sign. And then even within Italy, Italy itself is is bankrupt. And so the question is, will the country fall apart?
1: They're divided Um, by Belt and Road coming through.
4: Well, there's that. I mean, I think the interesting thing with the Belt and Road Initiative is the concern there is that actually that might very well be China simply just trying to currency exodus. It just printed so much money that it's wanting to get it out of the country. And sure, it's sort of like how, how Japan, you know, the Japan bought the Rockefeller um, Center yep. in, for, for $3 billion, even though it was only valued at 1.5 billion. And then after their currency collapsed, they sold it for 1.5 billion, and they were happy. And so I raise that because that may be what's going on here: is, is is that we assign motives that may not be there when it's just really just economics and currency leaving. But yeah. you know, these are all things that we. And I, I think the challenge doesn't do this. Go ahead. Oh uh, yes.
0: Yeah, I, I know you're a historian, so you can validate this. But I don't believe there's ever been a time of the entire globe, the entire globe, 200 countries working to solve one problem. And so you would think there would be a spirit of collaboration and togetherness, given the fact that this has never happened in the history of mankind. Uh, but my question is—is is that, that was maybe more of an observation. And I asked this of Jason, uh, and I would have asked that with Rana, but we ran out of time. Adv- advice to CEOs: What do they need to do now, so that their companies, their stakeholders can be relevant in this new norm, And 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 the bar is much higher, like you said, the companies that are digital immigrants that ignored their playbook, now need to rush to Constellation post-pandemic playbook and execute with sense of urgency. Um, but what advice do you have? And I know you speak to CEOs all the time. So, and I, I suspect now you're in listening mode, empathy, trying to be useful and helpful, but uh, now put your boardroom hat on and give advice.
4: Sure. So so the first thing I would say to CEOs is yes, you're absolutely right. This is This is unprecedented time. There is no textbook for this. Uh, and what I think CEOs need to do is find a way to create peer support networks. There is a group uh, called the Young Presidents Organization. It's 29,000 CEOs around the world, 130 of them. If you're a CEO, join that. Uh, because that will help you at least begin to, to, to share notions with your peers and be able to focus on things that help you improve your company, but also then think more globally as well. The second thing I would say to CEOs is if you expect someone else is going to fix this, that's not going to happen. You know, we are the Calvary. And so find like-minded people that are passionate about making it happen. Uh, I I know that both you, Vala and Ray, you are, I know I am as well. And so we we probably need to ping bring it together. And, And you raise the question, Vala, of like, why aren't countries coming together on this? And I think there's two reasons. One, the incentives are wrong, that there are no incentives for people to think globally if they're locally elected or nationally elected. Their only incentives are to play to their electorate or their local, governments and that's why we need to figure out what's a different model that involves industry but the second reason is there's always been there's always been misinformation or disinformation around any crisis uh when i was involved in response to 9 11 there was immediately conspiracy theories as to what 9 11 was about then when we responded to the anthrax events and later severe acute respiratory syndrome i mean with sars there was misinformation that somehow the u.s had created the virus so there's always been misinformation or disinformation But what's happened now is a large majority, especially in in the developed world, have smartphones. And these Mm -hmm. smartphones, while they give us great benefits, also tie into our emotions. They tie into our narratives. Everything we just talked about that's being used for good to shape culture can also be weaponized. And this is probably the worst infodemic I have ever seen in which there's a whole lot of misinformation. And that's making world leaders very risk averse. Mm -hmm. So the infodemic is almost as bad as the pandemic? It's, it's actually, I think it's, 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 it's hurting and possibly killing people because it's convincing world leaders to not take, in, it's almost encouraging people to take zero risk. Yes. And you have to take some informed risk in the midst of this. And you may be wrong and you tell the public, this is my first attempt at iterative learning, fail, is first attempt at iterative learning. And you do it over and over again, as opposed to just waiting on the sidelines, because you're never going to have perfect information, but you got to do something. And that's why people aren't coming together, and that's why I think we've got to figure out how do we do this new model. Because industry, in some respects, has better data and better insights as to what's happening, but they also don't want to give up proprietary secrets. And that's where maybe data trust again can be this trusted framework for food or for pandemics. But we've got to mobilize because unfortunately, um, the, the people we have elected in different societies—this is not meant to be U.S. centric. This is oh, just no, no, really everywhere, weird. everywhere. are yeah. they're, they're not risk takers, and they're also not scientists usually. No, and, and it's and Western so... democracies, right? So <laughs> yeah. So I think we've got to figure out what CEOs can do to raise their voices and say, look, we've got to figure out this long-term economy and we've got to make sure we build a stronger, more resilient world going forward. Because this is not the the only crisis that's going to be possible in the next decade.
1: Now, we don't want to have to wait till CCE to pick this up right in October. (laughs) I'm sure you're doing a whole bunch of other activities. I've got to cut you short. We are almost out of time, but you can follow Dr. David Bray Director of the Geotech Center and Geotech Commission at Atlantic Council, and follow him on Twitter. You're going to see some very insightful research at AC Geotech, uh, and he's been on our show eight times, both as a guest and as host and a guest host. So, hey, <laughs> yeah. thanks a lot for being on the show, and we'll catch up over the weekend as well. So, thank you, be, Ray. Thank you all the call. Thank so. you, sir.
0: <laughs> Take care. I don't know anyone that's committed to towards betterment of society than Dr. Dr. Bray. I've known him for years. And uh, he has this unquenchable thirst to do good. Uh, he's a connector, a generous connector. I've met extraordinary people as a result of his personal commitment to connect like, like-minded like individual. And he is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, you know, he's uh, everything that he does is purpose-driven, and it's always for betterment of others. So exceptional, exceptional human being. Forget about how smart he is and all the... Awards and degrees. My goodness, his bio is 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 second to none. Uh, he's just a good guy. He's just a good guy. So anyway, speaking of good guys, we've got more good uh, amazing guests coming next week. Is episode 189. We're approaching 600 unique guests. It's going to happen in the next few weeks, uh, months. So we're excited about that milestone. We have Julia bards Messer, SVP, head of data architecture, salesforce development at Boya Financial. We have William D- Davido, author of The Autonomous Revolution. Constellation has talked about the autonomous enterprise. I've written quite a bit about the, the the tech stack in the autonomous vehicle and how it will ultimately represent the autonomous enterprise. So I'm really interested in this in this topic. And Heather Willems, who, many of us who've been to Constellation Connect Enterprise know that there are brilliant ways of capturing the essence of a conversation and a thesis and so Heather's the founder of visual strategist and graphic facilitator and you'll see examples of her work live next week while our other guests are speaking hopefully we'll be able to get Heather to uh capture some of their wisdom um and as you know a picture's worth a thousand words so this is great Ray closing remarks on uh what has been uh you know just uh you know incredible uh few months I'm happy it's May I- I'm happy to exit April
1: uh, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I definitely agree with you on that um you know look uh we we're definitely in some very Uh, interesting scenarios going forward, and I think we have to make a lot of decisions. And and one of the things that I've been trying to help is is on Twitter, you've noticed I've taken some uh, provocative views intentionally to get people to have conversations they normally wouldn't have. And and really one of the things I really wish people would understand is like, you can believe in things that seem mutually dichotomous in some cases, but we can reopen the economy and protect those at risk. We can think about economic health and public health. We can think about common sense and data-driven approaches. uh, And I really hope that over the next three to four weeks, we work together. We come together to, to improve that, you know. And we, we think about how we can work with each other to be successful. Because right now, more than ever, we need everybody to come together, not to just go off into their own little tribes and complain. And the challenge is no trust in, no trust in media institutions, right? We we don't trust our our you know our political institutions. We have very little trust in terms of just you know just we're in the middle of an election year here too and in other countries. And so so I really hope we do pull together. And I think that's an important piece and that's one of the things I'm gonna keep committing to.
0: Absolutely, and I appreciate your, you may say you know, prop, provocative and bold, but uh, your level of accuracy in the content that you share knowing, and I've worked with you for years, that it's evidence-based, it's data-based, you triangulate and you connect with some of the best and brightest people around the world. And of course your background Uh, gives you the conviction and the moral authority to to share what you believe to be the ground of truth. And at the same time, I witness, when you see data that potentially opposes your views, you're flexible enough to potentially change your mind or continue to have dialogue because knowing there's a trust deficit, empathy deficit, forgiveness deficit, we now need to really stretch ourselves and look for goodness in people and ideas in order to really make progress. Uh, There's really no other way. So I applaud you for how active you are trying to share what you believe to be grounded truth um it's certainly spirited conversations and i like seeing it <laughs> i've taken my heads. i totally taking my hats. i totally
1: understand you know, but it's the scientific method you try different ideas you bring different ideas you get folks together and right. and, and hopefully we all learn from each other and so that's part yeah, of it I, I see definitely you know your, your company is definitely ahead of that and doing that so uh but yeah um i subscribe to jeff to bezos uh
0: when jeff bezos was asked you know who are the smartest people you work with he said people that can change their mind. all right we gotta go getting notes from the producer (laughs) we're we're way over um hey everybody have a great show
1: see you next week if it's friday it's disrupt tv see you guys bye see everyone